Uh, starting next Sunday, we're going to take a little break from that to do an Advent uh, sermon series. But this, this Sunday, we continue that uh, study, and we come this morning to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And before we uh, read God's Word, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word. And, and children can be dismissed at this time to children's worship as well. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, what a joy to witness and to participate in your gifts of grace and to bear witness and to celebrate, O oh Lord, already in such a rich way what you have done in Beverly and, and in all of us who have been brought to true faith in you and to see anew and to remember the cleansing of our sin, the washing away, and how we are made new, cleansed and renewed and forgiven and restored and redeemed by your grace alone, through faith alone, and the work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And now, O oh Lord, it's as your purchased and redeemed people that we come before you and we come uh, under the authority of your word. Lord, give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear. And give us hearts to receive. Lord, speak to us as we come to you this morning. Speak to us, O oh Lord, fruitfully and powerfully by the power of your Holy Spirit through your sacred word. And may it bear fruit of transformation, like the transformation from a caterpillar to a butterfly. And may it be for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. This is part of Paul's uh, kind of concluding exhortations. He's wrapping things up in his letter and he gives these, uh, has uh, concluding instructions and exhortations, and we find them uh, continued here in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. <clears throat> Thomas Hardy once said, Happiness is but the occasional episode in a general drama of pain. Happiness is but the occasional episode in a general drama of pain. And as followers of Christ in the world, we can say that there is, a, is at least a measure of truth in those words. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said. When C.S. Lewis was lamenting the bitter passing of his wife, he said, we were promised sufferings. They were part of the program, he says, and, and I accept it. 
Although if you read his book, A Grief Observed, which is really a, a, a raw journaling of, of, uh, of his heart and soul in the wake of his wife's death, it is clear that his acceptance is laced with bitter lament and complaint. To live as disciples of Jesus in the world is, is, is to endure suffering and, and opposition and pain. And that is the context in which we need to hear Paul's uh, familiar words in our text this morning. At first glance, these verses seem a little bit like just sort of a string of loosely connected instructions. They read a little bit like, like what parents might say to the babysitter as they're heading out the door. You know, this sort of string of last-minute, randomly strung-together commands. You know, lock the doors, give the kids their snack by 7, don't let Johnny watch the TV, and make sure Sally's in bed by 8, call or text if you need anything at all. Just sort of this, this stringing together last-minute things as they're going out the door. And it kind of reads that way a little bit at first sight. But unlike, unlike these last-minute, out-the-door instructions, these words of Paul are, in fact, tied together by a common underlying theme. These are instructions on how to live as disciples of Christ in the face of opposition and suffering and pain. You see, Paul, remember, Paul is writing these words while he is in chains in Rome. And he's writing to the Philippian believers who are living under the constant threat of opposition and suffering and persecution from those who claim Caesar as Lord and want nothing to do with Jesus as Lord. And on top of that, they're dealing with the pain of divisions and conflicts and rivalries and selfish ambitions and all the the effects of that within the life of their own church. And it's within this context that we have to hear Paul's words. He gives us three commands in these verses, telling us three things about how to live as disciples of Christ in that context, in the face of opposition and suffering and pain. So, the first command that Paul gives, and I I don't have PowerPoint for you this morning, and all that's been happening the last few days, that's one of the corners I cut. So you can keep your Bibles open if you'd like, and you can just uh, do it the old-fashioned way and... Look at the text with me, if you would. The first command that Paul gives is to rejoice in the Lord. Uh, Paul says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, what what Paul is not saying here, as I, I suspect most of us know, Paul is not saying that we are to feel happy in all situations. That's not what Paul means. That's not what he says. He is commanding us, it's an imperative, a command, commanding us to rejoice. And given the context of suffering and opposition, this is, I think, a defiant kind of rejoicing. It is a stubborn act of the will to rejoice even when you don't feel like rejoicing. It reminds me of the story that Andrew Brunson told when he, when he was here with us, telling us about his time when he was being held as a prisoner uh, for his gospel witness in Turkey. And he said how he didn't feel any joy at all at that time. And I loved how authentic he was. He said, no, it was, it was a horrible time. I, wasn't, I didn't have peace. I didn't have joy. And I wasn't feeling all great about stuff. He said it was, it was a terribly dark and burdensome an awful time. But he forced himself, he said, to, to, to dance and to recite scripture and to do these, these acts, these rhythms of, of praise and of rejoicing. He would rejoice in the Lord even when he felt no joy. 
And of course, we see the same thing in Paul himself. We read in Acts chapter 16 that, that he and Silas were thrown into prison. And instead of sort of turning bitter and, and wallowing in self-pity, Luke says they were praying and singing hymns to God at midnight. And the other prisoners were listening to them. They rejoiced in the Lord with this defiant kind of rejoicing even when they were in chains. I think Tim Keller captures well the biblical idea of rejoicing. He says this. I'll give it to you twice so you can let it sink in. He says, rejoicing in the Bible is much deeper than simply being happy about something. To rejoice, he says, is to treasure a thing. To reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. Let me say it one more time. Rejoicing in the Bible is much deeper than simply being happy about something. To rejoice is to treasure a thing. To reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. To rejoice in the Lord is to praise God even if it is a defiant kind of praising in the midst of trials until the heart finds rest in the goodness of God. It is, as John Piper once said, to see and savor the glory of God in the face of Christ until our hearts are persuaded that Christ is everything and that Christ is enough. The key to rejoicing then is to remember, is to remember, which is what we're doing today in baptism and communion, to remember what God has done for us in Christ. And this is why it's so important for us to, to remember our baptism. And why it's so important for us to remember the sacrifice of Christ through communion, to do it again and again and again, which is why I have no problem celebrating communion uh, this Sunday and then doing it again three days from now. Because we need grace upon grace. We need to remember we can't ever remember enough. It is through our celebration of these means of grace that we remember and treasure what God has done for us. When the French uh, philosopher and theologian Blaise Pascal was converted, he wrote about his conversion experience on a piece of parchment. And he described really in, in rather great detail, so he didn't just kind of a little jot a little note. It was, it was a pretty long little note that he wrote about describing what he calls the, the fiery joy of his conversion. Just this, this sense of this overwhelming fire-like joy that, that came into his heart at the time of his conversion. And he wrote that out and, on a piece of parchment. And then he had that parchment sewn under the lining of his coat so that it would be close to his heart and, and, and serve as a constant reminder of what God had done for him in Christ. And when that coat wore out, he, he had that lining torn open and he took it and he sewed it into the, under the lining of his next coat. And when that one wore out, he did the same thing again and on and on it went for, for every coat he ever owned until the day he died. This is what rejoicing in the Lord looks like. It is an active remembering of what God has done. In, in, our, in our remembering, we are filled with what Peter calls an inexpressible and glorious joy in Christ. 
So that's the first thing that Paul says. The first way to live as disciples of Christ in the face of opposition and suffering and pain is to rejoice in the Lord always. The second way to live as disciples of Christ in the face of suffering and opposition and pain is to be gentle to all. Paul says in verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. And the word gentleness can also be translated as it's really a unique word that, that is used only five times in the whole New Testament, and there's not a single English word that can capture the sort of the fullness of the original. And so that there's sort of a, it's a combination of a whole bunch of, of English words like, like forbearance and, and softness and mildness and gentleness and kindness and, and meekness. And all, if you put all these things together, you have the sense of the word. And again, in the context of opposition, the idea is that of, of not returning evil with evil. So when someone wrongs us, we are to respond with gentleness and forbearance. We follow the example of Christ about whom Peter said in his letter, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You see, that's what Paul is talking about here in Philippians. That is a, a gentle response. When opposition comes, we are to let our gentleness be evident to all. And the, the, the word all there has connotations and implications of those outside the body of Christ. So when, when those outside the body of Christ are inflicting opposition on you, we are called to respond with gentleness. As Proverbs 15, verse 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A few weeks ago, we were driving, our family was driving uh, in our truck, and I noticed flashing lights in my rearview mirror. And so my mind quickly went to all the things that I might have done wrong. And why is this cop pulling me over? I wasn't speeding for change. <laughs> I hadn't committed any illegal acts of driving to the best of my knowledge. I was going through all the things and I, I, my, my tabs were up to date and, and I had no idea what it could be and I wondered if maybe a blinker wasn't working or something like that. So I pulled over and I rolled down my window and when the cop approached me, he was immediately and rather intensely antagonistic and confrontational. Like, unlike anything I've ever seen before from a cop. There wasn't a hint of softness in his demeanor or in his voice, and he just sort of launched into this kind of verbal assault. And as it turns out, the cop had no legitimate reason for pulling me over at all. It seemed kind of like he just wanted to be mad at someone. And it really caught me off guard because I've always had rather, you know, pleasant and positive interactions with cops when they pull me over and <laughs> for the most part. It's not that often. But I, I wasn't expecting this kind of opposition. And I have to say that my immediate impulse was to meet harshness with harshness. To, you know, if he's going to raise his voice at me for no reason, I'm going to raise my voice at him. If he's going to insult me, I'm going to insult him. 
And so when he opposed me, my gut reaction was to oppose him back. It was just this, this, instant, this instant response. And thankfully, by God's grace, and maybe by the fact that my whole family was with me in the truck, uh, I was able to respond with at least a measure of restraint and gentleness. And so I calmly handed him my license and my registration when he asked for it. And when he came back to my vehicle, and I have no idea, it's the oddest, strangest thing. I still have no idea what the, what the whole scene was all about. But when he came back to my vehicle, he was like a completely different man. He was like a Jekyll and Hyde kind of situation. He came back friendly, almost apologetic, and sent us on our way. But the point of that little story is that it's, it's hard to do what Paul says, isn't it? It's hard to meet opposition with gentleness. And it, it was hard enough for me in that little encounter with a cop. How much harder is it when we face more severe kinds of opposition, when we are slandered and insulted and falsely accused, when, or when we are physically mistreated or thrown into prison or, or persecuted to respond with gentleness? How hard is it to do that? But this is what discipleship demands of us. In the face of opposition, Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Number three. The third command and the third way to live as disciples of Christ in the face of suffering and opposition and pain is to pray with thankfulness. In some of the most familiar and cherished verses in all of Scripture, Paul says in verses 6 and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, they're really... There couldn't be more fitting verses for me personally than these over the last few days. I've been living in these verses and, 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 and living them out to the best that God has given me. Uh, like I mentioned in the announcement time, Lori uh, went to our doctor on Thursday with just really with strange symptoms of... of achiness in, in her hands and going up into her arms and, and her legs. And uh, so I went to our doctor and, and then came back, and things just, just plummeted um, really severely Friday um, to the point of utter weakness and fatigue, uh, not being able to walk and, and difficulty swallowing all things. And she woke up Friday night multiple times feeling like she said her body was shutting down, like just the, nothing is working, my body is shutting down. And it is, was a, a scary, it has been a scary time. So a trip to the ER yesterday, lots of blood work, tests, questions, exams, some measure of assurance and yet uncertainties and all kinds of unanswered questions. And through it all, I've been putting these words of Paul into practice do not be anxious about anything, Paul says. Well, how do you do that? It's an easy thing to say. It is not an easy thing to live out. I was at times over the last few days trembling with anxiety. 
And so I would do what Paul says, because I knew that, you know, this was in my heart and mind, and I've been, like I said, living in these verses. And so I would do what Paul says in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And, see, and notice it's not just prayer and petition, it's prayer and petition with thanksgiving. And so I would, I would do that. Thanksgiving acknowledges our dependence on God. It, it recognizes his goodness and his generosity and that everything comes as a gift from his hand. And so what does that look like to pray with thanksgiving? Well, this is what it looked like for me and what it has looked like for me over the last few days. And again, again, and again, and again, multiple times throughout the day and in the middle of the night saying something like this, dear God, I don't know what is going on with my wife. And I cry out to you for comfort and mercy and answers and healing. And I thank you that you are sovereign over all things. I thank you that you are loving and good. I thank you that there are no maverick molecules in the universe. I thank you that you work through all things for the good of those who love you. I thank you that you have made us to be your children through the precious blood of your Son. And as your children, we cry out to you for wisdom and strength and healing and peace. That's what it has looked like for me again and again throughout the last few days. And Paul says in verse 7 that praying this way comes with a promise. This is the promise. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, not an earthly peace, not a, a human peace, not a a kind of peace that any human could muster or generate or even think of within themselves, but the peace of God, the deep shalom and wellness that streams from God's character, the kind of peace that is deeper and wider than what any human mind can fathom, this deep and abiding peace will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And that word guard is such a strong and vivid term. It's a military term, a term that's used to describe soldiers surrounding and guarding someone to protect them from attack. That's what God's gift of peace does. It surrounds and it protects the heart and mind from the attacks of anxiety and fear. And I've learned over the last few days that this promise of peace doesn't always come right away. In fact, maybe it hardly ever comes right away. When I first prayed with thanksgiving for Lori on Friday, knowing, again, doing what Paul says, I'm going to live it out. So I prayed with thanksgiving for Lori on Friday, and I didn't feel any peace at all. In fact, I didn't really feel any different after I prayed than I had before I prayed. Nothing changed. But as I continued to pray with thanksgiving throughout the day and into the night again and again, that promise of peace the peace of God did come like a trickling stream. It came through persistent prayer with thanksgiving. And don't get me wrong, it's not like, oh, it came and oh, everything's great. No. But it came. And it comes in fits and starts. And there was, are waves of fear and waves of anxiety and waves of other things. But along with it, there is that stream of peace.
that has come through persistent prayer with thanksgiving. And I would also add, as I've pondered, well, where does this peace come from? So it doesn't come just right, pray it once and it's there and you're all good to go. No, it doesn't work that way. It comes through persistent prayer. But I've also learned that it comes through this, and that is through the presence of God in the body of Christ. It came through reading God's word to Lori in the ER. She was lying on the hospital, on, on, the, on the bed, and I would just open up the Bible and read to her, and for both of us, the peace of God came. It came through the outpouring of love and support from so many of you. I have felt so, we have felt so surrounded and blessed by our church family. It came through the hugs of friends and the prayers of God's people and the encouragement of fellow believers sending words of comfort and support and scripture. Paul says at the end of verse 7 that this gift of peace is ours in Christ Jesus. It's the most important thing. that The gift of Christ is the greatest of all gifts and the ultimate antidote to anxiety. As, as William Hendrickson has said, the man of trust and prayer has entered that impregnable citadel from which no one can dislodge him. And the name of that fortress is Christ. And so in the face of opposition and suffering and pain, the best that we can do is to feast our hearts on God's gracious gift of Christ until we burst forth with thanks. And it's then that the soldiers of peace guard our hearts and our minds in Christ. In 1815, there was an infamous battle between the British and the French called the Battle of Waterloo. And it took place on the plains of Waterloo in Belgium, which was a part of the Netherlands at the time. And at that battle, the British-led coalition uh, defeated the, the French army, effect uh, effectively marking the end of Napoleon's domination. And a few years after that battle, I think it was in 1820, the king of the Netherlands ordered the construction of this, this massive mound to commemorate the battle, and it was called the Lion's Mound, because at the top of that mound is a giant statue of a lion which is said to have been forged from the cannons that the French had left on the battlefield. And the lion's mouth is open, snarling through its massive teeth as it gazes over the battlefield. And it stands as a symbol of not only of, of sort of triumph, but also of just conflict and turmoil and the cold reality of war and opposition and suffering. And Walter Baxendale tells about a time that he was visiting the lion's mound, and it was a sunny spring day, and as he gazed upon that statue of the lion, he noticed that a bird had built a nest in the lion's mouth. So nestled among the snarling teeth of that metal beast, the bird had made a, a downy bed of feathers and twigs. And as Baxendale describes it in his own words, he says, from the very jaws of that bronze beast... The chirp of the swallows seemed to twitter forth timidly the toxin of peace. And it was, he says, the audacity of hope. That's what Paul gives us in these verses. The promise of peace. The audacity of hope. That image of the bird nesting in the lion's mouth is a picture of peace. The kind of peace that we 
so desperately need and crave, the kind of peace that transcends all understanding, the kind of peace that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus when we practice thankful prayer. It is the peace that finds rest and calm in the sovereign care and power of God, even in the midst of the snarling teeth of life's trials and tribulations. So this is how we live as disciples of Christ in the face of opposition and suffering and pain. We rejoice in the Lord always. We let our gentleness be evident to all, and we pray persistently with thanksgiving. But there's one final word to be said. All of these imperatives are really held together by, by a, a little easily overlooked indicative buried in the center of them all. It's kind of like a little hub, a little bit of a glue that holds all these things together. We see it buried at the end of verse 5, and in the Greek it's just two words. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. That is the indicative that holds all of the imperatives together. That is the indicative that that, that, that sort of uh, binds the whole text and the whole unit of thought into one. The Lord is near. He's near in two senses, and I think Paul intends both. He's near in the sense that he is returning soon to usher in his, his fully realized kingdom of glory, which will make all of our sufferings and trials pale in comparison. So the Lord is coming soon. He is near. And oh, how glorious it will be, so glorious that all of the pain and the trials and the, the difficulties will be as nothing before them. But he's also near in another sense. Then the second sense is this, that he is with us even now, dwelling among us through the Holy Spirit, bringing comfort and strength and hope in our suffering. Of all of the gifts that we've been given, few can compare with the gift of the, the nearness of God in the face of Christ. This is the gift that moves us to rejoice in the Lord and to be gentle to all and to pray with thankfulness. This is the gift that brings deep and abiding peace that, that God is near, the Lord is near. And so may we taste and see and live in the wonder of that gift. To God be the glory. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord, what beautiful and meaningful and intensely powerful verses these are. And I pray, O oh Lord, as we come before your throne in a time of silent prayer, as we prepare for communion this morning, that you would lead us into the deep truth of these words as we remember what you have done for us in Christ. Oh Lord, may we be led to rejoicing, even if we don't feel like it. May we rejoice in the Lord as a response to your gift of grace. May we, as we ponder what you have done for us in Christ, be filled with the, the Holy Spirit that moves us to be gentle toward all, even in the face of opposition. And may we, O oh Lord, as we ponder the gift of Christ, what you have done for us, the 
purchased us and redeemed us and cleansed us and forgiven us and made us, bought us to be your own. May we, O oh Lord, pray with thankfulness. And as you do, may your peace, the kind of peace that transcends all understanding, guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. O oh Lord, hear our silent prayers as we come before you and as we prepare for communion this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. So do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Oh, Lord, may it be so for us as we come to the table of grace with thanksgiving in our hearts, rejoicing in what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.